Welcome to Science Radio, a space where we chat about culture, belief, wellness, and current events, all through the lens of faith. Welcome back to another episode of Science Radio. My name's Jesse, I'll be your host today. And today I am stoked to welcome Joseph Scaff to the podcast. Thank you, Jesse. It's great to be with you. It's great to be with you. Now, Joseph, you wrote an article for us in the June issue of Science Magazine, all about money. And now, look, I will be a little bit transparent, help our listeners and our readers to peek behind the curtain a little bit. We were a bit clickbaity with the title of this Beating the Tax Man, because I think one of the things that we're all kind of feeling right now is the pinch of the cost of living, whether it be in your grocery bill, whether it be in your petrol or in your electricity bill, but probably all of those things and more. So what we wanted to do in this article specifically was share, I suppose, wisdom that comes from the Bible about finances and being able to steward that well. And Joseph, we're really thankful for this article that you wrote for us, and we're going to dive into it a little bit more today. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, do you want to just give the good folks at home a little bit of a bio? Who are you? Where do you come from? And why are you so passionate about money? I do have a little bit of a fit in each world, so to speak, because I'm currently serving as a minister here in Newcastle, New South Wales. I do help to organize and lead the Seventh-day Adventist churches, what we call the stewardship department, which is basically really helping our church members to better relate to money, to be more intelligent, to be more educated financially, and of course, to be a little bit more, to learn the joy of giving as well towards the community. But prior to becoming a minister of religion, I actually studied economics. So I I have a degree in economics. My father was an economist himself. So I grew up hearing about economics here and there. All my conversations with my father, he would bring to that side of things, understanding why and how countries make decisions and how money is kind of involved in all of that. So I fell in love with it. And I studied economics for myself and I worked for four years with investment banking. And I like to say that these four years, they feel like six years or eight years, really, because it's it has been quite a full on journey. Back in the days, I do not know how people do this these days, but back in my days, it was very common to go to work at 8 a.m. and leave 10, 11 p.m. And that's day in, day out. And that certainly was my experience. It's not great for your health, but you do learn a fair bit. So I worked for a bank called Credit Suisse in Brazil. I was a financial credit analyst. So that means that our bank would actually lend money to big corporations. So when I say lend money, we're talking about at least 15, 20, 30 million dollars. That's our little clients, small clients. We've done transactions where we lent a billion dollars to governments and so on. So that's kind of where my background comes from. And I do enjoy the connection between the two things, Jesse, money and spirituality and money and health to be a bit more precise. I think that these two things, these two categories are very well connected. If you're not in a healthy relationship with our finance, we will suffer on a mental level, on a family level, on a personal health level. My experience with that, since we're still talking a little bit about where I come from, people assume that because you're an economist, because you have a degree, because you work with 
investment banking, you automatically know a lot and practice a lot of good financial habit in your life. But that's not really the case. And my father, my family, they're not necessarily great with finance. And I have witnessed growing up a lot of times where my parents would have some serious arguments. And at the root cause of it was money, financial management. Go transitioning a little bit to the pastoral side of things. One of the, actually in Australia, the greatest pressure that leads families to break apart is actually rooted in financial hardship. So it's something that has some very, very serious consequences. And the beautiful thing that I learned in my journey is that it does not really matter how much you earn. After you, you pass a certain threshold, it does not matter. More money is not going to make you happier or more fulfilled or more satisfied. Rather, it's how you actually manage and relate that to that income is that going to make the difference. So once you are above the, let's say, a minimum line where you can provide for your basic needs, if you know how to manage your money and it can be fun and it can be interesting, it doesn't need to be burdensome, that will give you a boost in your self-esteem, in your financial health, and ultimately in your peace of mind. It's interesting you say that because I read an article, oh, it would have been a little while ago now. The premise was that there's a certain baseline of money that you have coming in. And I don't know, let's say for Australia, maybe that's $90,000. You have a, a fairly comfortable life. You can pay your bills. You can pay for your groceries. Maybe you can go on a holiday. You're comfortable. Below that, at certain levels, there's insecurity. There's maybe not being able to pay all the bills, depending on where you live. Of course, if you live in Ballarat, it's different if you live in Sydney. But when you go above this threshold of being able to live comfortably, the researcher was saying that there is there are diminishing returns about personal happiness. And of course, we've all bought into this lie that the more that I have, the happier I'll be, the higher my paycheck, the higher the quality of my life. Now, obviously, money doesn't buy happiness but enough money definitely can buy a sense of peace. Below that is where people can have real problems. But it's interesting that you mentioned that above that as well, that people can have problems. And I admit, as I was listening to you talk a little bit about your experience with Credit Suisse and being an investment banker and working into in that field, that world is like a completely alternate universe for me. For those of us who are, are a little bit interested, can you tell us a little bit, like you said, it was normal for you to go to work at eight o'clock in the morning, not come home till 10 o'clock at night. What is that world like? What is it like to work in that world? Because when you talk about 30 million, $40 million clients, and that's the small guys, that kind of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, look, I'm happy to. I don't know if you or some of your listeners have watched some of these classical movies about Wall Street. That sure. It's kind of like that, but minus that craziness of drugs and women. And I didn't have that in my time, at least. It was definitely not my experience. But it's a very competitive market. Really working in these financial segments, at least in the bank that I was at, I only work with people that I, my impression is that their brains are at least 10 times faster than mine. It was quite amazing. You really have a bunch of really bright people and everything is high stakes. There's a lot of pressure for you to be quick. So once the bank finds a client or if the client comes to the bank, 
usually it's the other way around. For that kind of banking, it's usually the bank kind of chasing the clients a little bit. Because at that level, clients have so many options to work with. But there is that pressure of, look, if you're not really quick, if you're not really fast, they're going to just turn over to the competitor and you're going to lose the deal. So it's a lot of pressure in that side. I enjoyed working there because in my area, I had to do a little bit of everything. So I had to do the financial calculations. I had to try to foresee if the client was going to be able to pay the bank back in five years time. So I had to learn about the industry, the risks, and also the contract side of things. And then the negotiation side of things. It was a very dynamic kind of a work, but at the same time, it, and of course, it's really well paid. They pay mm. you way above any industry in any area. It's absolutely no comparison. And in my mind, I was justifying it saying, look, everybody works really hard. Yes, sure. I'm working maybe three, four hours extra every day, but I'm earning three times more, four times more. So in my mind, that was the reason why I was justifying that they, it made sense to me. But that world is really talking to incredibly intelligent people. We're talking about incredibly complex structures. Sometimes, let's say I'm going to give the money to a company in Brazil, let's say $50 million, let's say to a beef producing factory. Usually it's not that straight away. The bank will find the optimal tax structure. So we're probably going to land from a bank subsidiary in the Bahamas to the company subsidiary in, in Guernsey Islands. And they both have tax treaties together. And then you lend the money in US dollars, not in Brazilian reais, but they pay part of it in reais. And then they give part of their factories a collateral. So you just imagine how many documents and layers of documents and lawyers that need to be involved to make that happen. Because at that level, any 1%, 2% savings, it's, it's a huge amount per year. But at the same time, you do enter into a bit of a vortex. And one of the things that I noticed happened with me while I was working there is that uh, I'm a person that enjoys variety. I like to study things of far and wide about a various different subjects. But when you're working at that rate of 13, 14, 15 hours a day, you basically become a one, a person that we in Brazil, we have this saying, I'm from Brazil. You became a, a samba, the rhythm samba, a samba of only one note. In other words, a music with only <laughs> one note. And they realize that you're just talking about money, money and corporate finance, and that's it. But it, you go to bed, you sleep with it, you dream with it, you wake up. But especially for me at that time, I had no kids. I was single. So that's basically was my entire life around that. So it was a great experience, great knowledge, definitely very financially rewarding. But at the same time, it's very challenging in that regard as well. It does take a toll. You need to really have a certain kind of personality or perhaps a very focused on that goal of making money because there's not um, too much outside of that, really. I'm interested, the journey from investment banking to ministry. Tell me about that. Yes, look, that's, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. It was a Christian home, but not really practicing. So we're not really religious at all. I started to be introduced to that idea of a Christianity, of Jesus, of a God that loved us and so on. While I was working with investment banking through a friend of mine, it's a bit of an interesting story. I think if you look online, you'll find, if you look for Joseph Scaff testimony or something like that, you will probably find something. I actually, it was a girl 
and I fell in love with her and I tried to win her heart by pretending that I was interested in these religious things, but by going to her church and paying attention to have something to talk to her about, I ended up really becoming touched by that. And in the end of the day, I did not have the girl. We did not end up staying together, but I stuck with Jesus. At that time, growing up, my father was an interesting character. He's no longer alive, but he was, he had a bit of a heart of a revolutionary sort of a man. He wanted to change the world. And I grew up with that desire as well. And part of the reason that got me studying economics and going to the investment banking world was that I thought that was my way of changing the world. I thought that, look, I'm going to earn so much money that I can retire really early and then use all of those resources to help other people. That's where, how I was wired. And when I started to learn more about the Bible, more about God, I realized that, look, the world's problem is not so much lack of money. The problem is that this money is just not really that well distributed. Now, I do not believe that anybody should force anyone to tell them what they need to do with the money. So I'm not, I don't really subscribe to some of the ideas of communism, for example. I think that we have to respect people's properties. But at the same time, I wondered why is it that we had such a inequality? And what it dawned to me is that it was fundamentally an issue of the heart. It was fundamentally an issue of a worldview. Whereas we, we as people, we grew up with that sort of idea that we have to look after ourselves. There's nobody really looking after us. And it's all about me and it's all about my status and my power, whatever different reasons. And there was not so much of the joy of helping others to become just as financially sustainable as you are. And I believe that once I met religion, once I met Christianity, once I met Jesus, I think that idea that, look, I cannot really be happy if someone, if my neighbor is going through a hard time. You know, what fun there is, what joy there is if I am eating a banquet, if my next door neighbor doesn't, barely has bones to eat. Can I really enjoy my meal? Surely not. And of course, this is just a small analogy. You can expand that to your immediate community, even to your country. I do realize that there is an element, uh, a big element of happiness from for people that have something, that have got a little bit to actually, not necessarily to give, period, but to go in a journey with other people and to really teach them how to be financially sustainable. So I realized that if I really wanted to make an impact, instead of just making the money myself, what if I share that message so that other people could learn and experiment for themselves the joy of giving, the joy of caring for others? more. So I realized that instead of just investing in assets that are restricted to our planet, I believe that by transitioning to the real, to the spiritual side of things, I would be investing in a kind of asset that had the potential to have eternal life, which is people. So I realized mm. that, look, you know what, I think I'll be making a greater impact. I'll have a greater joy a greater quality of life, a variety of life as well, if I transition over from one side to the other. It has been quite an interesting move. A lot of people did not understand that from my colleagues in the bank, in the financial world that thought that I was absolutely crazy to my family members and had it a very hard time to understand. But I'll tell you, I, I don't look back at all. It, it has been one mm -hmm. of the best decisions that I have ever done. I trusted that 
that which I believed was God calling me to do, he was going to provide, and he did. And not only that, I think that while I only earn a fraction of what I used to, I feel that my life is 10 times richer. Yeah, wow. No, that, that's really inspiring, man. And I think it's, it takes a lot of courage to, to make a move like that. The world of finance is such an allure. And you've, already, you've expressed that. It's such, a, such an exciting, such a fast pace, such an interesting and fun world to be in. And you get paid at such a high level. But transitioning to, yeah, what you're doing now in, in stewardship and in ministry, such a rewarding shift. I'm really interested. You said at the beginning of our conversation about money and spirituality, and you threw health into the mix. And I don't know that's a connection that most people think about when it comes to money. Sure, we might think about it in terms of being able to have quality of life or whatever. So what is it about health that is of particular interest to you as it relates to money? Yes, thank you very much for asking this question, because indeed, it took me some time to sort of connect the dots and see how they were all really connected. And this is how I see it in several ways. Number one way, money has rule. Money is like, almost like a being of its own. It's no wonder that when you go to the Bible, Jesus would call money, he would call it and give it a name called mammon which was almost like a deification because money is like, it can have these almost godlike qualities to some people. It has a bit of a life of its own. But one of the things that the foundation, I'm just going one step back so I can explain the relationship between the two things. But one very important thing for people to understand is there's only one thing that you learn about money today in this podcast. Money and time are interconnected. Money and time. And that money... Over time, it can either grow or it can shrink, it, but it does not stay the same. That's $100 now, it's not going to be $100 in terms of purchasing power in 50 years' time. And at the same time, money is also driven by a law of nature that is the law of compounding interest. According to Albert Einstein, this is the strongest force in the universe the law of compounding interesting. And the law of compounding interesting interest is actually something that we often don't realize because it takes some time to pick it up. But there is a very interesting analogy, a little anecdote that back in the days, a thousand years ago, someone in India was a very smart man and he wanted, he wanted to marry this really wealthy sultan's daughter. And they were, and they still, Sultan's daughter, that Sultan's man was saying, how can we do business together here? They, he appreciated the man for his intelligence. And the story goes that they'll be, the smart man, the intelligent man said, look, if you give me one grain of rice for each, for each house in a chessboard. So in a chessboard, there's 64 little squares. He says, if you give me one rice for the first square, Second rice, no, two rices for the second square, four rice, four grains of rice for the fourth square. If you are able to give me that all the way through, doubling up every time until we get to the 64th square, then I'll be able to marry your daughter. The wealthy man realized, look, this is nothing. He said, yeah, sure. And by the time that he got to the 64th square, we're talking about, I, I don't have the number in my head here. We're talking about something like three billion grains. It's more grain than a country would eat once a year. And of course, I was so impressed with that sort of wisdom of this man that he ended up giving his daughter 
consenting to marry him with his daughter. But the point is, why do I say that? Because at that very root of that law of nature of compounding interest, one of the elements that is so important is, in, is the element of self-control or of delayed gratification, which is uh, having the ability and the strength to sacrifice my a, 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 a pleasure of an immediate pleasure that I am experiencing now in the present so that in return, I can reap a greater reward or a greater benefit or with a greater interest in the future. But the problem is our nature is we want immediate pleasure. Mm-hmm. So when I say that w- when you're working with money correctly and you're seeing your money, you're refraining yourself, you're practicing this delayed gratification, you're practicing this saving. And, and look, I'm not advocating for us to be monks, not never spending anything. There's a place and there's a time for it. The problem is not spending. The problem is overspending or the problem is not really investing and growing that into the future. That is the problem. But at the root of that, there's this word called self-control to resist those impulses. And the more you do that, the stronger you become. And this is the same thing that is at the root of a good health. Because to have a good health, sometimes we want, for example, to eat something that is right now. I want to satisfy my immediate hunger. So instead of me stepping back, preparing like a healthy food, I just want to go to what's quicker and easily available. And that's oftentimes the processed foods or the fast foods, or the foods that are not good for you, because the foods that are good for you, if you want them to come to you in a heartbeat like this, it's going to probably cost you a lot of money. That's the trade-off. At the center of health, there is that idea that, look, if I resist the short-term gratification here, now I'm actually going to be stronger and better off in the future because I am taking the time to do what's better for my health. So that, that element of they have in common, that self-control or that self or that ability to restrain oneself, that ability to gratify oneself later. And I usually like to use that analogy. This is how life is supposed to look like. I don't know. Do you have kids, Jesse? I do not. Maybe don't have kids in your family, perhaps? Yep, yep. Nieces, nephews, all that. Yep. When you take them to the playground, for them, in order for them to actually slide down a slide, what do they need to do first? They need to climb up the stairs. Right. So this is the law of nature. So you first put in the effort and then you enjoy the ride. But what sometimes happens in our life is that we put it the other way around. We just want to reap the, let's say, the pleasure and we don't put in the effort necessary for that kind of a pleasure. This is why we ended up eating more than we are exercising, for example, or Mm. we're spending more than we are earning or than we can afford. And of course, in the short term, that definitely will give us a boost in our dopamine in our, that's make us quote unquote happy, but in the long term, it's not really sustainable. So when you're talking about mm. health, that's element. And of course, the element of mental health, because if you're financially distressed, everything loses its flavor. Relationships, they start to get hard. You start to think that, that am I failing at this being an adult business? And it can be very discouraging to be in a place where all the money you're receiving is going away for things that you have already consumed in the past, that they're not giving that that happened, but all these deaths, they're ba- mm. and then you cannot choose a different job if that one is terrible because you can't afford not to pay your bills. And that makes you even more depressed. So it just enters into this vicious cycle. This is how these two concepts are interconnected and related, both from that self-control perspective, but at the same time also from indirect 
cause and relationship, cause and effect relationship. That if I'm not well financially, if I don't, I'm not going to have peace. And the opposite is true. If my finances are under control, I can experience peace. I can, I can actually be home and I have enough margin to go on holidays with my friends. If something happens, my car breaks down, that's fine because I already have a fund for emergencies. So I'm not, it's not going to disturb me too much. And then I can cruise through life with much more patience, with much more grace, with much more peace of mind than if I'm living from paycheck to paycheck. That's good. And I think as well, it's important to note that the world's message completely lies to us about the relationship between stuff and experience and money. Just pay it off on a credit card or go on a payment plan or take the shortcut wherever possible because the emphasis is on if you buy our product, you'll be enough, you'll be cool, you'll be whatever. That's the lie of materialism of you take now and worry about the consequences later or don't worry about the consequences at all. And we get ourselves into slavery in, in some sense through this whole thing. You mentioned it just at the end there, so I wanted to go there. When it comes to you working with individuals, with couples, with people, let's say somebody comes to you and let's say a young married couple, they've just gotten married, they're planning their life, they've got these big dreams for the future, but they don't really know that much about money. And they say, Joseph, where in the world do I start? What would be those first things that you would tell somebody if they're coming to you for financial advice? And probably should caveat, like, this is generalized stuff. This is not individual advice for individual people. But like, in general terms, where would you start with this sort of stuff? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. I will draw a little wisdom from the Bible, if you'd allow me to, where it says that know the conditions of your flock. So the Bible is kind of inviting, of course, you know, we're talking about a text that it was written 3,000 years ago. People didn't have bank accounts. What they had was sheep and cattle. And there is this wisdom in the book of Proverbs that's saying, hey, make sure that you know the conditions of your flock. In other words, like, hey, make sure that you know how many sheep you've got, which ones are healthy, which ones are unhealthy, which ones are pregnant and whatnot. And just have an idea of what you have. And I think that this is where this, I would start with this couple. How much does it cost for you to run yourselves, you Inc.? You would be surprised of how much clarity you can get just by knowing how much do you actually cost to run yourself. That's the first thing. Just leave the lay of, just to have an idea of the lay of the land. How much am I spending? What are recurring bills that I have? How much am I earning? Where we are? What we bring? What are our savings and whatnot? Because with that information, that's the foundation of what we will need to understand. Okay. How much can is actually healthy? or sustainable for us to spend. Because if I realize that I'm spending 110% of what I'm earning, and every month I'm chewing 10% of my of my savings, well, down the track, you end up with nothing. And you, we will end up being a, becoming a burden to our parents or to our community or to whoever. Nobody wants to be that. So I would say to the couple, this is the number one thing. Make sure where you are. And then usually I offer people a bit of a rule of thumb And that rule of thumb, for example, is you don't want your living expenses to be more than 60%. Just a rule of thumb. There's different ways, but normally you don't want to be paying more than 60% in all of your living expenses. And I'm including here 
your car expenses, your housing expenses, your living expenses. So 60% debt, then about 10 to 20% investing in the future, savings, and then discretionary spending. You're buying your clothes or you're buying food or going out in the restaurant, going on traveling, your know, holidays. That's with another 20%. If I'm talking to a couple that is a Christian, for example, it always add that 10% to set aside 10% as their tithes to support their church community, their church mission. This is one of the instructions that the Bible give. And you'll be surprised. There's so much joy. A lot of people haven't experienced the joy of actually giving without expecting anything in return. Nobody does it in our day and age. Like that's just not a thing unless you get sucked into somebody knocking on your door at 4.45 in the afternoon. We just don't do that anymore. And then you do begrudgingly. One of the things that I recommend to people to do is set aside a portion of your income and set up a generosity fund. And in this generosity fund, if someone, if a, if a friend, for example, if I'm calling someone to out to dinner and my friend, they, they don't really have the money to pay for, I can pay for them and I take that for my generosity fund. The generosity fund is something that my wife and I, we agreed upon on a certain percentage, on a certain amount. And we put it there. If someone comes and they are in a desperate need or they need something, this fund is like a sinking fund in that we say, look, we get that money, we help them with that. So we know how much we are able to help. We're not over helping, so to speak, and getting ourselves into trouble. But it's also money that I'm not really expecting to receive back. Sometimes if they give back, I'll just top up that same fund. But if not, we are happy just to give out to whatever situation needs. And it's quite amazing. Sometimes one of the coolest things you can do is get like $50 or $100, go to the supermarket from this generosity fund. And you tell the lady at the till, apply that discount to the person coming next to you. And you just go. Just by doing so, you don't even need to see the reaction of the person coming behind. But just by doing so, it gives such a thrill mm. that it's almost like the feeling of winning the lotto. It's crazy how we are wired. Why do we take so much pleasure in giving to people who we randomly meet? But this is the reality. This is how we are wired. And I think that we're losing a big part of being a human if we're not practicing that little habit of giving to others, mm. not being the only receptacles ourselves and our family of our fruits. That's like plants. An orange tree gives oranges not to itself, but to give to other people, to birds, to, to, to the animals. And, and when we experience that same kind of thing, I, I do not know how orange trees feel, but if they feel anything like we do, they must feel amazing from being able to contribute <laughs> like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good word because, yeah, it's just something that goes against the zeitgeist of our culture. And I think as well, it's really important for this moment, this cultural moment that we're living in right now. Everything is becoming more expensive. Everything is becoming tighter. July 1st is coming around pretty soon and I'm dreading the 25% increase in my energy bill that's wow. going to happen. Yeah, That's a reality for so many people around Australia and around our region. So I know that we could potentially spend the next half an hour to forever talking about the cost of living crisis. But I think it's really important to talk about finances, particularly in times like this, because it's when people get scared and when people go a little bit crazy with their finances and can potentially make some serious mistakes. And of course, there are many people for whom their finances are completely out of con their control. Things are happening to so many people that they cannot control. Let's talk about the moment that we're in right now. 
everything's going up. Our rents are increasing, interest rates are increasing, the cost of fuel's increasing. Everything's getting more expensive. The only thing that doesn't seem to really be increasing, at least not enough, is our wages. Yeah. So <laughs> it would, it would right. be fine if, if, if my wage was increasing by 25%, but that doesn't seem to be happening to anybody. So right. There, right. there it is. What are you seeing? Perhaps maybe let's go for a 40,000 foot view about the moment that we're in financially. And then maybe let's talk a little bit about some of the things that we can do to weather this storm while it's happening? Yes, that's a great question, Jeff. And just from a 40,000 feet perspective, we are living in times of uncertainty. Uh, I know I don't need to mention we have a major war happening at the very heart of Europe. This changes things. This changes the supply. In Australia, we are somewhat shielded from that to the moment because we are also producers of a lot of the same things that were being produced in, in Ukraine as well. But still, what happens if the whole Europe enters into war? And instead of allocating resources for education or Centrelink or whatever, the government starts pumping up the military. And now imagine if instead of now having the, let's say, the, or the husband or the wife or whoever is the main provider of the house, to be working in their normal jobs. Now they have to recruit. They're going to be earning on a lesser salary. What, what's going to be of that? If that doesn't happen, but if we see an increase of 50% in terms of the prices of fuel or 50% in terms of the prices of food, what's happening? And there's so much volatility at the moment. And I'm not only talking about war. We saw it with COVID, how much prices changed during COVID, particularly when it came to housing, that was a big shift that nobody was really seeing. Some houses, they appreciated 50% in two years. That's great if you already owned a few properties, but it's very challenging if you're trying to buy your first home. What we do then, what if you know the borders are closed? So now we are not able to import goods or even food as easily as we did before. What's our resilience then? So I think that, look, we are, our world is in a bit of a chaotic state. Sure, some technological development could happen, which would make things cheaper in the future. That could happen. But one of the questions that we have to ask in the financial savvy world is how resilient am I to bounce back? What happens if, you know, my expenses increase in 50%? Do I have a plan? Am I able to now accommodate a more frugal lifestyle at the moment so that when that happens, I'm safe? A couple of things that people can do is number one, establishing an emergency fund. Just setting aside an amount, however that amount is, let's say 10, 20% of your income to this emergency fund that you're not going to touch and build up, let's say six months worth of expenses for you. That's a very reasonable, sensible thing to do. Also, in, depending on your consumer habits, could it be that can you challenge yourselves to live with spending 10% of your income in discretionary spending and really waiting until you can act, you actually have the cash to buy that next gadget instead of buying it now and paying it later? And the thing about buying it now and paying it later is that it tricks us psychologically. It tricks us psychologically. So before you know it, you have overspent. 
before knowing, because you're just paying a certain amount each week or each month, and it's very manageable. But before you know it, the, you're going to be paying that for a long time, and then you, you're going to be very frustrated because you already have you already have the habit of buying things when you don't have the money, and now you want to keep buying things, but now you have a big debt attached to you, and that debt is costing you money as well because there's not such a thing as a free lunch. There's interest built in everything. It just warns you out. So from that perspective, I would say that a few sensible things to do is number one, I would actually give everyone, and maybe you guys can do this. I do not know. If they write you guys and get a book, I would really recommend a couple of books. There's one book called The Credit Crunch Christian. So it's from a Christian perspective. And how can you actually navigate through turbulent financial times? And it's looking, even though it's called The Credit Crunch Christian, it can really be read by anyone, irrespective of background. And the second book that I would also give to anyone is a book by an Australian author. It's a book called The Barefoot Investor by Claude Pape. And that's a very sensible book. It's going to teach you, it's not going to teach you how to become a multimillionaire, but look, the, the reality is most of us will not go into that pathway, but it will teach you how to be smart about money and how to find peace, financial peace. He'll talk about how to deal with, what to do with your insurances and how to organize your bank accounts and all these kinds of things. So from a big perspective, establishing an emergency fund, managing your expenses, making sure that you're cutting back expenses that you don't really need. So if you remember that exercise that we mentioned in the beginning to do with the couple, it's very easy to recognize where the weeds are that they're sucking out of your money if you actually have an idea of what's coming out of your bank account. And I guess that the last thing would be to really how can I learn to enjoy the three things of life a bit more or the simple things of life a little bit more instead of spending money? What about enjoying free events? What about spending more time with the people that we love? Spending time in nature. Nature is one of these few things that still they don't charge us to enjoy or not too much at least. So it's really rewiring our brain to align our tastes to things that are not necessarily pushing us to to buy bigger and better all the time. Yeah, I think that I see this all the time. People get used to a certain lifestyle. And when that lifestyle is challenged, they really struggle to adapt or to step down from, I don't know, buying that $5 bottle of milk versus the $3 bottle of milk or going on holidays to Switzerland versus going on holidays to, I don't know, snow mountains there's different levels of lifestyle that i think we're all accustomed to but i think yeah being being humble in that and being responsible is much more important especially when you're thinking about the future and uh, and your family i want to i want to go back to something that you were talking about before great book recommendations the barefoot investor yeah really great book i enjoyed that one quite a lot but i want to pick up on Yes, not everybody's going to become a multimillionaire, but I'm sure that in your experience, you've noticed a few of these. I don't know. If, I feel like if I say financial guru, I'm saying it sarcastically, but for lack of a better term, financial gurus, are there practices or things that people do that get them ahead over time versus everyday individual people? If somebody wants to take their finances seriously, and wants to get ahead. Are there certain practices or things that people 
do that people can do like practically that will add up over time yeah absolutely and i think that one of the things is once remember when we talk about okay establish a bit of a, of a budget one of the things is really our grandparents let's put it that way our grandparents when they receive their take home pay from their jobs they would usually organize that money into different flower pots or, or, or little glass jars, if you want. And each one of them, this is for me to pay the bills. This is for me to pay the groceries. This part. So they would actually get and they will divide the money in the proportions to be able to pay all of those things. And they made sure, like, for example, if the grocery jar ran out of money, then they ran out of money. They had to wait until the next pay. They had to leave out of whatever is in their pantry for that time. Noodles and, a, and cans of tuna, whatever whatever they had available for them. So one of the things is to really separate yourself and stay true to that budget. So in that book, Scott Paper recommends opening up multiple bank accounts and each bank account functioning as one of these flower pots. So this is my recurring bills and I know that they are. So the same money goes there and I'm paying for them. I, with them, I can try to every year renegotiate them so I can jump across to the cheapest electricity provider or the gas provider or the insurance provider instead of just kind of sticking with the whole one. Each year, you can actually save money just by switching around providers. So that's one thing. But then it's very important that one of these jars is the investment jar or the savings jar. It's called Pape in his book. He calls it the fire extinguisher which is there to extinguish the fires of life. It's quite poetic, poetical about it. And that is the jar where you're saving that money and you're investing it. You're investing it in shares where it's going to be growing over time, for example. It depending on where you are in your journey, you could be investing in, in, in buying property. That's a whole different story altogether. But property is a good way if you're investing the money and if you have a good amount saved as a down payment, the first thing, the first priority, particularly in the Australian economy, is buy a house. Even if it's not the house that you live in, at least a house that you can rent to someone. And basically that, what that means is that in 20 years, that house will be yours and you'll be collecting all of the fruit of the benefit from it now. So the earlier you, you do that, the better. But at the same time, you need to make sure that you have the money saved for the down payment, number one. And number two, also that if you need to pay off some of the interest and principal of the repayment of the house, of, the, of your mortgage, that this is aligned with how much you actually earn in your life. So it's not like a huge, you're not like paying for a house that is so expensive that your mortgage is taking like 50% of your salary. That's not going to be healthy. As a rule of thumb, we don't want any living costs. Living, so I'm talking about rent or mortgage or electricity or water bill, you put all of there, ideally, you do not want that expense to be over 30%. If you are above the, that 30%, you're more, more likely to be in financial stress. Now, that being said, for example, if you already own people that already are house owners, particularly by the time that they retire or even before, usually those expenses that come for 5%, 10%, However, if you're living in like Sydney, for example, it can be as much <laughs> as 50%. Yes. Yeah. And again, the question is, is it worth it for me to live a little bit further away to pay for a cheaper rent? There's some more strategic decisions is, can my job be done re remotely? Because the further away from the large 
centers you are, of course, the, the cheaper the rent will be. On the other hand, we have to drive more. But on the other hand, if you're living towards more of the, of the country, for example, the temptation to buy a luxury car will be much less because nobody has them. Cars there are like are dirty and old and so on. So that sort of a whole status thing is you now starts kind of disappearing. You don't have that. It's not that all your colleagues are driving the car of the year anymore. You know, the car of the year is, is you know, from 1995. These are some of the, um, I guess, some of the things that can be done. Look, we are running out of time. So I just want to be mindful of that. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. I know it's been really helpful for a lot of people. I think the thing that I want us to land on at the end here is balance. Because I think this is true of most of us fall into one of two categories. We are either the spender or the saver. And obviously that's extremely reductive. But I can definitely attest to this in my marriage. I am the spender and my wife is the saver. Heaven help the two spenders who end up getting married to each other. I think and that that's... In life, believe it or not. Oh, clearly it can work. So there you go. <laughs> but okay, so let's, let's just talk about th that balance. Because I think even yeah. if you're a spender or a saver... At the end of the day, all of us want to be able to have a comfortable enough life. We want to be able to live. We want to be able to enjoy our life, but we don't want to do it at the expense of our future. We want to be able to have a good future. Even if you're the spender, I'm the spender. I still want to be able to have security in the future. If and when I have children, I want to be able to send them to a good school. I want to be able to put clothes on their back and food on the table and all that sort of stuff. So what advice would you give that person that says, look, I'm struggling between, I want to enjoy my life in the present, but I also want to be wise for the future. How can I strike that balance, Joseph? How can I find that, that Goldilocks middle ground? Yes. No, thanks. thanks for asking that question. And there's a thing that says sometimes the difference between a life-saving medicine and a poison is just a matter of quantity. And I guess that this is also true for finance. So I'm certainly not one, being a spender myself, I like to say, we're, my wife and I, we're spenders. And it was easier in the investment banking days because you could just spend as much money as you wanted and your bank account just kept increasing. <laughs> That's not what reality when you watch my life. That must have been nice. <laughs> you know, it had its perks, but now it's not the case. So it's okay to be a spender as long as you're not an overspender. That's where the risk is. Look. It's a matter of balance, as you said. Remember when I was giving that analogy of people that go ahead, they, they're thinking in terms of buying assets instead of buying liabilities. Number one, they have this, they're systematically separating a portion of their funds, 10, 20% and investing it and allowing it to grow for the future. Check. But the people that relate to money the best, they also set aside an amount of money to spend and to enjoy life and to build memories. And this is so important. And sometimes with the saver, so to speak, you know, since we're talking about that, for them, sometimes it's a sin to spend even one cent. Mm -hmm. And look, it's definitely not. That's not that direction. The question is how much of your income you're actually going to use to actually spend. So it's very hard to define how much is right for everyone. But when you're looking at big pictures, to most people, it seems like about spending 20% of your income is actually, it's actually quite, it's a good rule of thumb. It's a good place to start. 
And then again, if you like to spend a little bit more, you can tweak it up a little bit more. If you think it's just too much money on your hands, you can tweak it up a little bit less. But uh, usually you divide that 20% in two little, in two big, two big buckets. One of them, and I'm using uh, called Pape's names here. So he, he uses uh, one called Splurge. And if the Splurge, you just buy whatever you want. If you want to buy something by impact, you buy with your Splurge money. Just make sure you have the money. The only rule there, don't spend more than you actually have. But you're going out, you want to go out and have a dinner out to your friends. You use your Splurge money. You want to buy that clothes that you love, you Splurge money. You want to go to the movies or buy books or just like my kids, I'm a bit of a book addict. So yeah, go buy a book with that money. So that's the Splurge. And the other 10%, he says, is the smile. The smile is you're saving up to buy the bigger things, the things that are going to make you smile. So you're saving that for your holidays, for example, or perhaps you want to change your a piece of furniture. You want to buy that sofa. And look, remember we're talking about there's no problem in going to Switzerland or to Jindabyne in the holidays, as long as you are doing this with the right money. It may be that I, it's my dream to go to Switzerland. And I want to stay in this most expensive hotel. That's fine. As long as I pay for the money that I already earned, it may take me 10 years to save that money. It may take me five years. But as long as I'm doing this, it's fine. So having that 10% to buy the bigger things, I'm talking about like the trips, the nicer things. Maybe you want to buy like a camera or a new piece of equipment or a computer, whatever it is. But falling in that category and buying it when you have the cash, having that discipline which is hard, which is a muscle. Like you have to train that muscle. We are a little bit disconnected from that because look, if you want to buy food, Jesse, you go to the grocery store and you buy food. Back in the days with our grandparents, if you want a broccoli, you have to start do something today to harvest that broccoli in three or four months time. So they knew how to wait. And they knew that they also had, if they wanted to be eating the entire year, they constantly had to be planting. So we lost that sort of patience, but nature is, has its own rhythm and it's not different with money. And once we learn how to just join that rhythm of waiting and suppressing that anxiety of having everything wanting now and learning that right now I can do things that will help me get to that objective faster, that now I can actually enjoy things that I already have in my presence and I don't need to feel miserable because I cannot enjoy something that I don't have. Once we kind of align ourselves with that sort of accord, that it's a constant in the universe, it does make it everything easier. All of that is. So then I will say, so yes, look, make memories, go travel with your kids, buy gifts for your friends, for your spouse, do all of these things for, buy gifts for yourself. Go ahead and plunge that money, go and have that ice cream, but just set the money aside, do that in a way that it's not going to compromise your future. Set aside 10, 20, 20%, 10% for splurge, 10% for smile. And you will see that, that you will get there and it's, it tastes better when you buy it with your own, with the money that you actually have. So good. I think that's a fantastic note to, to end this conversation with. Thank you so much, Joseph. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And look, I will admit, I probably should have said this at the beginning, talking about money makes me nervous. For so much of my life, money has been a negative thing for my family, not having enough of it. And then in my marriage, tensions over it. But the way that you've been talking about it, I feel hopeful. I feel excited. Even in the midst of the very real pressure that all of us are living in, I feel a little bit more empowered. So thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. 
Oh, you're very welcome, Jacin. Look, if it's also helpful, my I have a friend of mine who's a financial advisor here in Australia. His name is Sam Bonello, and the two of us actually started a podcast. And our aim is to have a conversation with with folks like like I was, and like perhaps a lot of your listeners were or are, is that people that don't really feel that they got from their parents that money savvy sort of a skills. They feel that they need to do some catch up and there's, there's time to do that. So we started a podcast. It's called Two Cents Podcast, your practical guide to financial education. So you can Google that, Joseph Scaff or, or Sam Bonel. Awesome. We are in all platforms. And the idea is that we are, we're not assuming that you know anything. We're not assuming that you're money experts. We're actually starting from scratch and you're building up and we're looking forward to actually interact with you guys as well and to be able to answer the listeners' questions that they might have, specific questions. We would love to do that as a general financial education. And uh, I'd like to invite you and all your listeners to check it out and to chat with us. And we'd love to be on that journey together, learn together, and so that everybody can experience that peace of having all of your flocks, all of your money under control. Fantastic. What was the name of the podcast again? It's called Two Cents Podcast. You'll see that in the our podcast album has a coin, a golden coin with two heads on it. That's the only one with that. But it turns out that there's a whole bunch of podcasts named Two Cents. Two Cents Podcast by Joseph Scaff. If you Google that, you'll find us and we're looking forward to continue these conversations with you there in a non-judgmental environment, very relaxed, very practical and things that anybody can do. And with no doubt, your life will start, your financial life will get better each day from once we're applying these principles, just one step at a time, little by little. Awesome. All right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well so that people can go and check that out wherever they listen to podcasts. So that sounds amazing. Thank you very much, Joseph. And again, if you would like to read the article that Joseph wrote for us, that'll be in the June issue of Science of the Times magazine. You can Read that by heading over to signsofthetimes.org.au, subscribing digitally or in print or reading the blog post on the website. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you again. But for now, I'll say goodbye to everybody. I hope you have a wonderful day. We'll see you again for another episode very soon. This episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A print subscription is $28 a year or just $14 for a digital subscription. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. This is an Adventist Media Podcast.